Hello and welcome to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host, Matt Kennedy. Uh, Pod Sequentialism, of course, grew out of the Pop Sequentialism published catalog of comic book art of the modern era and the traveling exhibitions of the same name. And uh, we also are sponsored by Gallery 30 South in Pasadena, which is my new endeavor with my wife, uh, the jeweler Adnohia, and um, also La Luz de Jesus Gallery in the Wacko Soplant Superstore. And as always, we record here at Meltdown Comics and Collectibles. So this is going to be a very interesting episode because I'm going to be speaking to a couple of friends of mine who I could probably interview with complete and full shows on maybe 10 different subjects. And so we're going to do, I think, a lot about publishing and about the sort of new gig economy. But I'm going to let this go where it goes because I I guarantee you every aspect of this is going to be interesting. And whether it's from the punk rock publishing underground, doing uh, Black Other Times in D.C. in the early 90s to running payment processing for... um, for porn sites, which is erotica sites, erotica sites. So is that that's that's true. Yes. So the um, it, it becomes a really interesting lesson in economics. And so, without further ado, you just heard a little bit of Amelia G. I've got Amelia G. and Forrest Black, and we're going to talk about razor candy. We're going to talk about blue blood. We're going to talk about black leather times, and we're going to talk about economics. But I guess welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi. And <laughs> this is so ridiculous. So the um, thank you for having us. Absolutely. So th- th- I have to I have to preface this with um, you guys are really good friends of mine that I don't see quite enough of because we're all crazy busy. But we do have a lot of areas that do cross over, and so we do see each other with some regularity, which is not always the case with a lot of people who are really good friends of mine that I see them maybe once every two years. And I'm I'm blessed that I see you guys as often as I do. And I think we referenced it a couple weeks ago in the air when I was talking about going to the All Porn Awards, and you guys invited me, and it was fabulous. And you won a lot of awards, which is fabulous. Yes, yes, that was fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> Not every single one we wanted to, but the ones we wanted the most. That's good. That's good. And it was a fun party. It was a fun party. Yeah, that was a good time. Now, let's start with 1990, 1991, and the Black Leather Times, which was a zine in the punk scene in the D.C. area. It started off, it was... Me and two other feminist punk women started it, Mm -hmm. and it sort of pretty quickly developed a voice as sort of a punk humor zine. Mm -hmm. Very very much humor became its kind of hallmark. And this was a Xerox stapled... Initially. Yeah. It definitely went from different forms of technology, Mm -hmm. where it started off as like, you know, the worst photocopies in the universe, because it was the, you know, the very beginning of the zine revolution. Right. And over time, there were times it was offset printed. There were times we did it on a risograph, wow. which was um, a printing press that used wax plates. Wow. But they, you could actually do color printing and s- swap out colors fairly easily, more so than on offset. Mm-hmm. Um, there were times it was offset printed. It Line us- the type. Yeah, it was <laughs> crazy, the stuff, <laughs> the different technology that we used. Um and I used to use a hand waxer early on mm-hmm. in Paste Up, where you get the just gross Paste Up wax on everything. Mm-hmm. And I used to think, someday, I'm going to be a successful enough publisher, I'm going to have a table waxer. Because I'd done some day jobs where I got to use, like, <laughs> table waxers. Only, 
I haven't even seen a waxer in, I don't know, 20-something years now. <laughs> so I, I was so unsophisticated that when I was doing this type of thing myself that I didn't, I wasn't using the wax, so I wasn't putting something in place to be able to move it around. If I looked at it and it didn't look right, I just redrew it, which was a huge <laughs> draw in my time, which meant that I didn't publish regularly. But um, so you, you were working on this for quite a few years. I mean, you've, you've just put out recently the um, Black of the Times, BLT 25. It is huge. I mean, yeah. this, this is a very, very <laughs> thick book. I'm, let me get a page count in here. This is... 436, Holy I mackerel, which is... That's a lot of zine. That is a lot of zine. Yeah, we did it like six, seven times a year. Mm-hmm. And usually it was for... I, I used to live in a, um, a punk rock group house in the D.C. area mm-hmm. called Cambodia, then one called New Cambodia, and then one called Hollow Point. I know that one of those houses resulted in me learning what the definition of chiggers was. <laughs> that you told that you told me what I was like. What are those things? And you're like, this is terrible. This is what happens. Punk rock houses. This is a thing. You have to burn your furniture. <laughs> I apologize for interrupting, but I had to say that that was old Cambodia, and there are totally articles about when we gave the entire DC scene scabies in <laughs> in that Black Leather Times omnibus there. repeatedly. Yes. Yeah. Well, because the thing was, I mean, you know, we were young. Mm. We were, you know, counterculture. Some of us were promiscuous. Mm-hmm. So it was something where we, you know, you burned all your furniture, you put all your clothing in plastic bags for weeks. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, somebody has sex with somebody outside of the house and maybe they're not better yet. Mm-hmm. And then everybody gets all reinfected all over again. And of course, back east, there's mm-hmm. so many rugs. Yeah. So yeah. many rugs. You know, we're, we're kind of spoiled mm-hmm. for hardwood floors out here in California because it doesn't get cold and you don't wake up and put your foot in the floor and scream, um, usually. But the, the, the temperatures and the climates in a lot of the major cities, and a lot of the major cities where punk rock was outside of L.A., uh, got cold and people had carpets, and that meant that bugs stayed and fluids congealed and all kinds of other horrible <laughs> things. That, wow, this is starting off in a really interesting direction already. I love it. So but, uh, the um but, but one of uh, my housemates his girlfriend was in college mm-hmm. which meant that she actually had a health plan through her school there was like a health center right so she got a prescription for the neurotoxin you use to kill scabies mm-hmm. and she's like oh you know my boyfriend has it too so you know could I get some refills and so I think she had one refill on it. So we wrote a two after the one mm-hmm. so that she would have 12 refills. Nice. <laughs> and we got them all at once. <laughs> and it was like the world's biggest like jar of neurotoxin. But it did eventually make everybody better. So that was good. Wow. Incredible. And so you you were in D.C. for a while. Yeah. And you, you grew up there. No. No. No, Forrest grew up there. Forrest grew up there. That's right. And well, San Francisco and D.C. Right. And... Do you want to talk about why you lived in D.C.? I come from a family of hobos, and when I got to college at Wesleyan University, it was my 12th school in 12 years. Mm -hmm. Um, The Wesleyan hobos. I think that's their mascot, isn't it? (laughs) Uh, Cardinal, actually. (laughs) I know. I know. Um, And uh, so when I got out of school, there wasn't an obvious place to go home to Mm -hmm. and there wasn't an obvious place to go I'd done an internship in Boston Mm -hmm. but and I liked Boston I really did you don't have to say that just because I'm I'm no I really I genuinely really liked Boston but going to Boston as a recent college graduate and being Mm -hmm. like hey I went to a top tier school and I got really good grades and I'm really smart 
want to give me a job? It's like, this does not differentiate you in any way yeah. <laughs> in Boston. Yeah. It's like, that's like, you know. Every so, school. So much of that city. And so that wasn't really an option. And right. I didn't, and I feel like New York is like the best thing of all cities, but also the worst. Yeah. So I didn't want to move there. And my mom got stationed back in the D.C. area. So I'm like, all right. She was like, why don't you like come here for a few? So mm-hmm. I did, which I shouldn't have. Because I I hadn't lived with my parents since I was like 15 or whatever. Right. And that was weird. Um, I had a lot of friends in the area because I'd gone to a lot of science fiction conventions in the D.C. area. Mm -hmm. So I pretty quickly put together a group house and moved into it. That's a whole other thing that we could talk Mm -hmm. about, too, is the fact that's another one of the tracks that I know you guys from, too, which is that there's a huge, I mean, there's a huge family of fandom that is the the bigger envelope of fandom and, and you can include things like the San Diego Comic Con in it. But then there's the the real niche ones, you know, like the um the LA convention and the um like Boss Con and a lot of the Dragon Con, I guess you would say, down in Atlanta. And that there is such a huge built in fan base for every different type of geekdom, but that our circles do they vent a lot like we've i worked in the goth night club in la when you guys first came out here it was oh wow yeah hey, this exists of course this exists and you've probably known about it from like the the kind of the the goth underground that word gets out anyways back in those days that club was so giant compared to what we expected right. where we were like coming out from right do you want to tell the story about going there? Mostly we like walked in and they've got that sort of initial room that you walk into um, and, and the sort of where they would do signings and stuff like that. And like from D.C., because we're used to like the 930 club, the old 930 club yeah. being in that little basement and, and all that. So we're just like, well, you know, this, this is a pretty cool club. It's, you know, got like 12 people in it and, you know, whatever. It's, <laughs> that it's was like, just the hallway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then we like go through and there's just this vast expanse of space. We yeah. were just like. <laughs> well, that that club was a pretty big club. We're talking about the Probe, which is kind of a legendary club in Los Angeles. It was the um, the first and longest running gay nightclub. Uh, Probe was the first dedicated gay nightclub in Los Angeles. Ran for decades, and on Sundays was Club Seventies, which is a big deal in the in the nineties. And it was also where Helter Skelter was after a fashion. So Helter Skelter had been at other places, and that's kind of the oldest goth club in LA. Mike Stewart being the principal behind that, which is funny because you look at him and he looks like a retired hockey player. But um, and he was he was the goth father, you know, and he, he kind of set up a lot of that stuff. Very famously, one of his high school classmates was Tim Burton. I did not know that. Yeah, both went to Burbank High School. And that sort of, you know, that scene was definitely the biggest goth scene in the world. You know, having gone back to the Batcave in London with Mike and with Steve and some of the guys that worked at that at that club, it was a basement with about 12 or 20 people in it. And it was sort of surprising to me that, that everything that we had known about the goth scene, which had started in London and expanded, it stayed the exact same size in London for 30 years. Well, some of that, I think, also is what media gets out. Mm-hmm. And I think that really taps into what's really important about media Mm -hmm. because it immortalizes things. One of the reasons I love photography is having moved so much growing up Mm -hmm. that a photo, it it takes that one moment and it makes it forever. Right. And, you know, like Forrest and I went and we did a lot of photography in the Houston goth scene. Mm -hmm. The Houston goth scene has some really cool people in it, or at least it did in the early 2000s. Haven't been back there in a little while. Only it wasn't 
global giant, the biggest one ever. But a lot of people assumed because we produced a lot of media based right. on it because we make media. Right. <laughs> that it must be this giant thing. And then they'd go and they'd be like, hey, you know, that nightclub's not actually that big. And it's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when, when, when Propaganda Magazine was, was first circulating and um, I was Propaganda out of England or was it, it wasn't LA based, but there was certainly a lot of LA people I, in the I, I signed a non-disclosure agreement um, when I settled um, the, the lawsuit that I brought against Propaganda. <laughs> so I think I'm going to not talk about that. <laughs> talk about that, right. <laughs> so the, um, interestingly... <laughs> Moving right along. One of the um, things that I really liked about DC mm-hmm. in specific was that the scene was just the right size in that it wasn't so small that it just sort of dissipated into nothing, mm-hmm. but it wasn't so big that it sort of became uh, codified and segmented. Like in San Francisco, you've mm-hmm. got like every stripe of a culture goes to a different coffee house, right. they go to a different club and whatever. And in DC, it was a real mix of, of personalities and styles. So it's like, you know, the guy industrial people didn't look that different from the straight edge people and sort of everyone and the science fiction people would hang out at the same club so mm-hmm. you really got a good cultural mix yeah. whereas I find that sometimes in, in you know the bigger scenes or the bigger cities it's like you have to go to different places to, to sort of keep it mixed up and, and everyone's got their little like their you know, clicks dogma. and people that don't get along yeah so the in Boston it was interesting because you had Zone Decay and you had a couple of the nightclubs there was sort of like in Boston it was there was the counterculture as an umbrella and there was everything else and so you could go into different venues and it would be you know, a lot, a lot of queer culture, a lot of uh, industrial, a lot of goth, a lot of punk, and everybody kind of got along. Interestingly, and there was, you know, a couple of those clubs are mainly in Harvard Square. And years later, you're talking twenty five years later in Chicago, and I live in Chicago. That scene was incredible because it was sort of the opposite of what you're talking about. Everybody looked exactly the way they looked, but they all hung out. So you'd go into any place, whether it was, um, oh golly, I'm not even going to remember the names of the clubs now, but like Exit or any of the um, the kind of punk or, or dark goth industrial nights, and you would see, and those clubs didn't even start happening until about one in the morning because of the difference in the hours of things being open. Of course, notoriously, people say that LA is a city that goes to bed early. You know, it that, is. And it's, and it's huge. So you really can't have the same amount of fun, I guess, really, that you can in cities where you can kind of buckle down. And, you know, because it's everything is so far away, you know, if you live in Long Beach and, and your clubbing life is in, I don't know, Pasadena, I don't know why that would be the case, but um, <laughs> not to disparage either, but that the distance means that you've got a designated driver, that it's not everybody just out to have, you know, a maniacal good time. Whereas in Chicago, you can either hop in a cab or take the train in certain areas and start at a certain point and continue until six in the morning. And you know, New York is like that. Is, is D.C. like that? It's not as late as, say, Chicago. We, mm-hmm. have, we actually have a, a funny Chicago anecdote. Um was that it was world fantasy right i'm not sure yeah i think it was um so i was a guest speaker at world fantasy talking about um how to how writers could pitch their work to niche publications how Mm -hmm. to sort of tailor your pitches but we were in chicago which was awesome Mm -hmm. and chicago was really cold yeah which 
it was October, and we just weren't really prepared for how cold it was going to be. I first visited Chicago in October, and they sort of sold me the idea that, yeah, it doesn't get that cold, you know? And, and I went there, and I was like, I-, I can take this. Growing up in Boston, I can take this. This is the type of cold I know. I knew nothing, and of course, I got lucky. It was like that. It was in the 50s, you know, in October and not in the 20s. Well, it, it was fairly cold, and we decided that, well... It was Halloween, mm-hmm. so Electric Hellfire Club was playing at one nightclub. Metro, I think. Oh, yeah. That sounds right. That sounds about right. And Guar was playing at another nightclub. Mm-hmm. And because it was Halloween shows or whatever. bottle or something. Yeah. And it was a bigger venue. Was... Yeah. Yeah. So we went to the Guar thing first. And hilariously, we're like hanging out with those guys. So Forrest, because he's a big dude, was helping them carry some of their stuff out to their bus. <laughs> Because he's a big dude and a very considerate individual, only because, you know, they perform with rubber masks on their heads. Yeah. A bunch of people were all telling Forrest, oh, good show, man. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, I'm not in court. Not in the band. Well, how long ago was this? It was 500 years ago. Yeah. So was this when you had like the Predator dreadlocks? It could have been around that period. Yeah. yeah. Which yeah. is dangerous to be out in the mm-hmm. cold. Like, I remember hanging out with Mike Borden from Faith No More in 1989 in Boston, and he had a hood over the dreadlocks because he was petrified that they were going to snap off, (laughs) that it was that cold. It was about two degrees out. Wow. I actually had to leave my car in the snow on the way to the venue because it just stopped running. We just left it and ran about seven blocks in two-degree weather, got to the Paradise in Boston right as the opening notes of From Out of Nowhere was playing, and we were like, oh, my God, they have a new singer. (laughs) We'd never seen them with Mike Patton before. But so the obviously what you do takes you to a lot of different places. Oh, but and, I, I, did, I didn't finish my story. Oh. So so I was wearing underwear that had belonged to my grandmother, mm-hmm. which I assume she wore a dress over, although she was a flapper, so maybe not. Um, very beautiful underwear, but I was not wearing a dress over it. Mm-hmm. And so after Gore, we went across town to go see Electric Hellfire Club. And then we and everyone else who was in our room at World Fantasy totally got pneumonia, but it was totally worth it. Yeah. All right, now I'm done. Okay. <laughs> Tales of the Great Lakes. So um, you're photographers. You've you've published Blue Blood magazine uh, as a print publication for, for years. Is that continuing as a print publication or is that primarily online now? We're actually thinking about rebooting it in print. Mm-hmm. Like we're about to launch a barely evil magazine, mm-hmm. and it's kind of kind of a test run to see if we actually want to go go full bore. Because for Blue Blood, it's such a big undertaking. Magazines are, it has, are hard. Like it was one of those things where I didn't know it at the time, mm-hmm. but Blue Blood circulation was bigger than like everything else that was remotely in its niche put yeah. together. Yeah. It was like all those things put together and then Blue Blood and you had like roughly equal readerships. Right, right. It's just we were sort of off the map in, you know, D.C., whatever, and everyone else was in New York or Chicago or, you know, Boston or, or, or Los Angeles, San Francisco. And so we believed a lot of their numbers, which were basically just their advertising numbers or whatever. And we're like, okay, that's how big we need to get. So we'd call the printer and be like, how can we do, you know, 40,000 copies? And, you know, we'd do a lot of hard work and whatever and have a, you know, group house garage full of like publications. And, um, you know, so, and then we like got to know some of those people a little bit later and we're like, oh. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I've, I've published in numbers between like 1500 on a small like thin like magazine type run to 
40, 50,000 units and then reorders and things like that. As you know, you, you hit a certain number and your, re, your reorders are generally easier and you make more money. So if you have something that takes fire, it, that catches fire, it's fabulous. And publicity-wise, not actually, um, which is important to raise because you talked about having to store yeah. boxes and boxes and boxes of stuff. So a comic book-sized publication, cases you know, of a run of 1,500 books means there's 18 to 20 boxes in my closet. And they weigh like 60 pounds each. Yeah. And like I was in really good shape back then because yeah. I had to move all those magazines around. It's just like, you'd get, you'd get big, but, you know, and then you'd go to things Lift like- from your back, not from your knees. Totally. And you'd yeah. go to things like, you know, New York Comic Con and they'd be like, well, the union would be like, well, anything on wheels you have to pay us for. So you've got to you carry, carry those it. things like eight blocks. Yeah. So, you know, it was yeah. it was- an interesting exercise program, but that's a that's fifteen hundred. You're talking about forty thousand, and I mean, in in your move, you're moving a lot more of your 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 circulation number than I was. But the the storage on that in a monthly or bi monthly or quarterly publication means that you have even more boxes of stuff and even more boxes of stuff. And in in collectibles, like in comics, there's that assumption of value to a back issue which does to a certain extent carry over into niche publications yeah. so you also benefited from that now it's great that you came from fandom because that meant that you had an understanding of it yeah. whereas if you had been publishing through say national lampoon or something you know like the guys at heavy metal were doing for a long time if it didn't hit a certain number they, they it didn't have value it had negative value it was like storage space it was everything else so as you progress in issues and as the issues in certain areas in certain cities because you're distributed nationwide start to disappear, that means that people have to come to you for it. And now you're getting not just necessarily the full price on that issue. You can even jack it up a little bit because it's now yeah. collectible, which is amazing. And, of course, this is before anybody thought about binding collections full of you know, full runs of magazines. I've seen back issues of Blue Blood on sale online for hundreds of dollars. Yeah. It's like McSweeney's. Well, um, we're going to take a quick break here, and we're going to hear from one of our sponsors. And I should remind the uh, the listenership and advertisers that you, too, can reach this primary demographic by contacting us. You can send me an email at info at pop, with a P, sequentialism. And you can contact us on our social media, which is at podsec on Instagram and Twitter, and podsequentialism on our Facebook page. We'll be back with the principles behind Blue Blood and about 100,000 other things, Amelia Jean Forrest <laughs> Black, in just about 60 seconds. Hello, and welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I'm your host, Matt Kennedy, and we are here speaking today with Amelia G. and Forrest Black about expanding really from the the punk undergrounds of DC into niche publication in the goth punk, death rock, and erotica scenes. And we had talked about Blue Blood. We didn't really explain it, though. You know, Blue Blood was, um, when it was brand new, the first publication that catered to um, a kind of goth punk aesthetic in erotica, like um, we call it penthouse for punk. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I feel like we had more lifestyle stuff in it. Certainly. Um, and and so, niche lifestyle. So it was yeah. all catered to, if you liked one thing in that magazine, everything was good for you. Well, one of the, my real goals with it was kind of opening people's minds. Because, you know, like those first few weeks when you're dating someone new and you're mm -hmm. kind of like getting to be more and more into them, your mind's a lot more open. They play you music where normally you'd be like, I'm not going to listen to that. But yeah. you listen to it with a more open mind. And you're like, oh, I actually do like that. Or they lend you a book and you're like, 
all right, normally I wouldn't pick it up. Maybe I'll try reading it. Right. And so maybe it will open your mind and you will like it. I think having the erotic photo layouts and then having the erotic fiction by the big name horror and science fiction writers, but then also having the entertainment section where we reviewed all kinds of different things from comic books and role-playing games, et cetera, I think it really had a real cross-pollination possible there. And I think that was one of the really important things that I'm really proud of having done with that. And that's a really great thing, too, that, again, because of your familiarity with fandom, that is important. I remember, I think mm-hmm. the very first, this is bizarre. This is a weird thing to admit. So the, I think the first adult magazine I ever purchased was the penthouse that had um, Victoria, uh, Vanessa Williams and Tracy Lords in the same issue because there was a Stephen King short story <laughs> in that issue. And I was a Stephen King completist. You My know, mom bought me that issue. <laughs> I thought you looked familiar. <laughs> but the um you know that the a lot of that material like uh, whether it was George R. R. Martin I'm sure but um certainly Stephen King, certainly Peter Straub, certainly maybe not Robert Bloch, but a lot of the horror writers that became famous in the 70s and early 80s were getting published in We in Club in Penthouse, occasionally in Playboy, um, really much more in what was at the time considered the harder pornography, Hustler Magazine. And that was the venue because they were making a ton of money and they could draw and get stories from people that would normally publish books. But like any author, until your book really takes off, you're still working hand to mouth. You know, you're writing all the time, you're submitting, you're getting these these refusal letters. You know, as Stephen King famously said, he had a spike that was sticking out of the wall and he would just stick the next refusal on the top until they started to fall off onto the desk. And a lot of the support that allowed most of these writers of the late 70s and early 80s to actually become famous writers is that adult publications were buying and publishing their stories. And I don't know if that's because somewhere along the line, somebody figured out that if you like naked ladies, you liked horror. I don't know what that's about. But that it turns out that there was a huge crossover audience for lifestyle, nudity, um, fantasy, and all of these things. And so it wasn't like every month you got that. You'd get that every couple of years maybe you'd get that there would be a a story by an author whose work you loved in one of these adult magazines and you sort of took that idea of like hey you know like like you said i think i think you might have been joking but that the, he's not joking no he was that not the, joking um, that the that penthouse <laughs> with with the um stephen king story in it you kind of did that every month where it was you would contact an author whose work you liked and say hey do you have a short story that uh you you haven't published or that that we could run and because you were curating every magazine to be the magazine that you wanted to read and not thinking about reaching necessarily a larger demographic you get a larger demographic of people who like individual things and then like you say having that thing on the coffee table and someone comes over and they go "Ooh, what's that so was that a conscious effort from the very beginning oh yeah and when did you start approaching people like poppy z bright or you know some of the the well-known horror writers whose work you published well i was kind of a big scenester in like fandom before Mm -hmm. i started publishing that um i'd been doing blt for two years before that Mm -hmm. 
And so I knew a lot of the people just socially mm-hmm. beforehand. Um, so I think, I mean, we had name authors from issue number one. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, but I mean, there were people where I was like, oh my God, I have to call John Shirley on the telephone and I think I'm going to throw up because like, yeah. <laughs> I was just, you know, such a big fan. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were just a lot of people like that where at a certain point I was like, wow, anyone I can think of where I'm like, I want to work with them. Actually, I have the network at this point where I can find out their contact info and get to work work with them. Like James Obar did our T-shirts, like just stuff like that, that where I was it, it was something that was such a all the time thing where I was just like, wow, I got to do this thing. Right. And now certainly a few years ago, it was much more difficult to get into touch with somebody if you didn't have an in. Now it's fairly easy to figure out how to contact them. It's hard to cut through the hundreds of thousands of contacts for them to actually figure out who you are in order to respond. And so if you were to give a word of advice to somebody who would want to do what you did years ago and, hey, I wonder if so-and-so would be interested in letting me buy a story to run, what would be the route to do that now? Especially if you didn't have, well... Let's say you had a little bit of cred, you know, you're doing the zine fest circuit or something, <laughs> but not just like cold, like I'm going to buy this. I'm going to start this right now because I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the dilettantes. But I think if you've got a little bit of gumption and you've got a little bit of, if you've got a physical thing that you can show somebody as a calling card and say, well, I do this thing. What do you recommend? Like, how do you recommend them contacting, and getting a hold of people? Well- what I think that, that people should do is is first put in the work to do something cool. Yeah. Um, that if you've got something to say, it may not be completist or whatever, but put in the work to do something cool in whatever media, either you know online or in print or Xeroxed or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then more people will probably want to work with you than you think. Um, right. You know, they, they might have a story kicking around that there isn't the right venue for, and maybe you uh, opened up something that's in the right the right sort of niche or spot or whatever, and they might, you know, be a good collaboration. Because mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of people that are like, I'm going to do something cool, but you've got a name. Yeah. And that's like something that turns a lot of people off. Yeah. So sort of having that door open. Right. And you've got to get over that. You've got to make a bridge there, and that bridge needs to be kind of... Their, their consideration is what is their work going to be next to? Yeah. So it can't just be, hey, it'll be cool to have your work out there. They're like, I can do that on my own. Yeah. Um, so Physical I think that... goods are a great calling card. Absolutely. And speaking about the, the or topic. Or digital, even yeah. if it's, you know, someone did a good job. Right, right. And speaking about the topic you're, you're you know, mentioning earlier as far as uh, some of the adult uh, magazines and whatnot being a good venue for, for folks, um, the adult bookstores were actually a really good breeding ground for a lot of the zines as well because the laws in a lot of areas were that a magazine store had to have a certain percentage of non-adult material right so if they could have i know that very well having worked for leisure time and red hot video that each (laughs) i mean in the same city each council district had different rules about is it percentages is it numbers is it display space yeah so that there that became and of course the counterculture all the great counterculture writing was first available at adult bookstores. Yeah, so you could go there, and and that that kind of allowed you to sort of I don't know. It gave a good foothold, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, so that's interesting. And now we see a lot of those places disappearing now. And so, what is the venue now for for what you're publishing these days? You know, you've got last year you did that amazing book that had Alice Munn on the cover. 
Um, what was the title of that? California Death Rock. California Death Rock. And that did really well. You did a Kickstart and were able to get physical goods in, into bookstores as well. Oftentimes, it's hard to do that because a bookstore may feel like, well, you've done your Kickstart. Everybody who wants it has it. But that's clearly not the case. Yeah. I think it depends on how how astute at knowing your market and publication numbers is. And I think that the amount of years you guys have been in the business that you're pretty on top of it, I know it to be a fact, actually. But it helps. <laughs> it does. Well, it, it doesn't. It's not that it helps. It's necessary. Because I've seen a lot of people that have a single venue to be able to showcase something and they'll kickstart and they'll start another kickstart before they're fulfilled on the first kickstart. And it becomes this kind of Ponzi thing. Where I won't say scheme because it's it's a legitimate business model in entertainment that you need to have new product coming out as the old product is coming back. That's how the market survives. But that which means you either have to have a huge investment for when you get a big return from a major uh, retail outlet, or you have a lot of irons in the fire, and so you constantly have new product coming out, and that covers. And then by the time you hit a point of say twenty five or thirty titles, then you're reselling the stuff that you sold originally, so it's no longer just sitting in boxes in in our basements. So when you think about multiple possible venue streams, and you're talking about multiple different demographics, you're allowing a higher percentage of success by having a lower stock number. And I've always appreciated how you you tackle these things, but you have a degree in economics, right? A- MBA. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Degree. <laughs> Sorry. But, um, and from a great school. And... Not as good as my undergrad school. Well, still. <laughs> But all and but you also you you took your time deciding where. Sorry, you were I didn't mean that. Go blue. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. But the you know the that's the type of thing that I think if you're if you're serious about doing what what you do that you have to think about the economics of it in order to maintain it. That it can't just be a love. It can't just be you know that you know the piss and vinegar of 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 getting out a zine constantly. Um, that if you're going to sustain it and if you're going to love it, you have to experience some kind of success. So what's that balance been like? I mean, I guess you guys have always done fairly well. I actually think that both of my sort of education backgrounds were useful for that because one of my concentrations in undergrad was the evolution of literature. Mm -hmm. And actually, since we were sitting around campfires, in some regards... All the stories humans tell, they're mm-hmm. the same. And the technology with which to communicate those stories mm-hmm. and the scope of how many people you can communicate your story to mm-hmm. has changed over time. But there's certain human fundamentals where people want to tell stories. Humans, they they like that. Um, we, we look at our own lives and try to think, what is the story? How, is, it's not random events. What's, what's the story? Mm-hmm. And one business thing that I would recommend that anybody who's interested in publishing with modern technology, because we've used just about every publishing right. technology there is at this From point. From wax paper, linotype. <laughs> totally. <laughs> um, one thing I would recommend is Google inventory turn and learn how to do some of those calculations, because sometimes you're going to be better off doing a heat set web press run where you're doing 50,000 copies of something 
sometimes you're going to be better off doing an offset press run where you do, depending on what kind of press you're on, somewhere between 500 and 10,000. Mm-hmm. And different presses have different optimal print runs. Right. And, and paper sizes. Yeah, and paper sizes. And that's a big thing that sometimes a lot of people, I, I've seen this personally because we, we deal with a lot of artists and they don't necessarily think about final product and they don't have the business savvy to understand what's a good size and when's a good release. And we talked extensively before the Death Rock book came out about size and timing and publication. And it, I, I think you did it perfectly. And obviously you've got the new Razor Candy book coming out. It's a similar format. It's similar book size. So you, you've landed on a comfortable spot that seems to be working. When dealing with first time authors who are artists especially authors are sort of a a different category but in an art book when piecing together what it's going to look like they have this idea that they saw this one book that they saw when they were 15 years old and it was of a certain size and they always dreamed about putting out this volume that looks like that the business changes and what's acceptable to have on a bookshelf changes you can see it just in comics comic books have changed size six times in 60 years which is kind of extraordinary and when you think about if you don't talk to your distributor or your publisher about these types of things, you have to ask yourself, why aren't they giving me feedback? You know, if you're self-publishing, you're self-publishing and it's all on you. But oftentimes an artist isn't self-publishing. They're trying to partner with somebody. And if they don't listen to the feedback that the publisher gives, they're not going to have success. And if the publisher isn't giving any advice, they're a printer. <laughs> they're not a publisher. And that's, that's a that huge is a distinction. Really, that is a really good piece of advice. Yeah, that you want to make something sure. something where, you know, sometimes people, when you're publishing, they, they really do listen. Yeah. And sometimes they're like, they don't listen. It's like, what was the reason that you were looking for someone who was expert on this? Yeah. <laughs> you know? I, well, you run across that mm-hmm. in the entertainment business all the time. You know, I, I remember... I went from running my own company to becoming a marketing director at another place that paid me three times that I was making when I ran my own company. And they didn't know what they wanted me to do, but they wanted me. He was collecting employees like some people collect baseball cards. <laughs> like, oh, this guy's got a really good you know, batting average. Let's bring him in and just have him do something completely other than what we should hire him to do. And that, that happens a lot in entertainment. You probably brought some value anyway. I, uh, I like to think so. <laughs> Uh, they kept me on when they laid off a lot of other people. But the you know, the the standards by which the message and the medium match up is really the riddle, right? I mean that's that's the metric you have to use. You have to figure out what is my audience, what is a good size and price point for that audience for me to do the project that I have passion about that I want to tell. Because I feel like I know my audience and I feel like I know the subject. How can I make all of these things meet? You also have to think about sort of after the release, what happens then? You need to actually- me- Two weeks go later, the, the mental, two months later. Exactly. How are you going to do it? Because it's like, okay, yes, some things increase in value based on collectability. Mm-hmm. But is that graph going to beat the cost of storage? Right. Because cost of storage is going to go up faster than the collectability value. And sometimes a smaller project is going to work out for you fiscally yeah. way better than a bigger project that you sort of get, you know, it's like an albatross. It's just, it's this thing that's like, oh, it's beautiful and you love it and it's killing you. You can't yeah. pay rent anymore more because you've still got this book in the like storage or whatever and you become desperate after it's already been released and you're like actually i need to figure out what my initial numbers need to be yeah and then i need to move on to the next project 
Yeah. And you could be successful doing that, and people always, you know, think bigger is better, but bigger can also be uh, problematic. Oh, it can certainly bankrupt you. You know, m- one of the stories that I love to tell is about uh, Fantomas, which were a small DVD label in the U.S., and they put out great stuff, fantastic stuff, and then they were approached by Francis Ford Coppola to produce his One from the Heart DVD <laughs> that had never been released in its director's cut. There's a reason for that. But... Um, <laughs> You know, he he very famously went incredibly over budget on that project. He recreated Las Vegas in a soundstage rather than shoot location. It lost a ton of money. It's kind of a dour film. But it had acquired this reputation not unlike uh, Heaven's Gate, the Michael Cimino film, which was a huge flop. And then people like, oh, but you haven't seen the four-hour and 20-minute version. It changes everything. Fine. And so Coppola made a deal with them that he would not charge them a licensing fee. It would be more of a rev share, but that he had to recoup what it cost for him to actually piece together this this cut of the film because he had all the materials, but he had never done it. So they were sort of, without understanding it, on the hook as producers. So they start soliciting in 2007. And this is right before the home video market goes completely off the cliff, and especially on DVD. The everything market went off the cliff at that point. (laughs) Yeah, certainly, certainly. And they got an order for, I believe, 120,000 units from Walmart. Because Walmart, if they ordered anything back in those days, brought in at a minimum 40,000. This is a Coppola title. He directed the Godfather films. So three times the minimum order still wasn't that big of an order for them. It was by far the largest order that Fantomas had ever had. And they produced... 140,000 units, figuring, well, if if 120 are going to Walmart, certainly we can sell another 20, you know, 30,000 units, whatever. And I didn't even do the math there, and I'm sure that's evident to everybody. But that three months after that film came out, they got 118,000 DVDs back Mm. that Walmart had sold 2,000. And it was an expensive DVD because it was like a three-disc set or something. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was bucking the trend of DVDs becoming less expensive at that point and becoming more expensive. It didn't have the Criterion logo on it, so they weren't going to get it. And it bankrupted the company. One DVD release bankrupted the company. And I got calls to, to purchase all of the Japanese titles they had put out. And I'm like, why would I want these? You've already put them out. So it's not knowing your numbers can be a huge detriment to the point that it can ruin you. So I've actually over the years acquired some distressed websites that had sort of some good content inventories and it's pretty much worked out well 100% of the time. Yeah. And again, that's that's a it's a different demographic or I should say not, not different demographic. It's it's a different business metric than than a hard good DVD release that um they already had DVDs produced that they hadn't sold out of. So it wasn't like, hey, this is off the market. Do you want to buy these these titles? Which you would then calculate, okay, well, how many did you produce? Doesn't everybody who wanted have it already? That in photo sets and video content for online, the more you have is generally better because it offers you more variety and it pads out things. And if that model's still working and she's popular, you get that demographic is going to come across the sites. But and we can t- I think we'll do a whole other show on RevShare because I think that the way that that works online is incredibly fascinating. But as I'm a big fan of it, I'm sure. <laughs> like we do a lot of uh, affiliate promotion of other people's stuff. Yes, which you won an award for. And yeah, for 
that's for, for our own affiliate program, Spooky Cash, yeah. where if folks are looking for ways to make money on the internet, SpookyCash.com. There you go. Um, we pay out 50%. But um, in addition to having our own affiliate program for our membership sites, we promote other people's. Mm-hmm. And there are... There's two main models for adult affiliate promo. Mm-hmm. One is pay per sign up mm-hmm. and one is rev share. Mm-hmm. Pay per sign up is somebody wants to get, you know, 20, 30 bucks or whatever every time someone signs up. And rev share is you give them some percentage. Uh, Amazon is rev share. They right. give you 5%. Well, they, they used to be. I don't think they do in California anymore. No, they do. It's 5%. It came back. Damn you, Amazon. <laughs> but it's a, I mean, a 5% payout. Obviously, I'm paying out 50%. So, right. You know, you literally would have to do 10 times as well with Amazon on, it's unlikely. It's literally exponentially. <laughs> yes, it is literally exponential. So, um, and so it's something where for me, I always like to do rev share because there's two things that happen with pay per sign up. Mm-hmm. Either the people who are offering you, you know, to pay you $30 for sending a $20 sign up, they're totally fucking the customers that you send over yeah they're like triple charging their credit card they're doing some shady thing so if you care about your audience you shouldn't send people to people who are doing that. right the other thing they might be doing is failing to do the math on how many rebills they're going to get and what their actual value of the customer is right and they're going to go out of business and they're not going to pay their tab right and that that's the business of impressions right there which is again we're going to have to do another episode where we okay. talk about that. Absolutely. But the in in talking about figuring out your numbers, what are you what are you figuring on now when you approach a new project like we talked about maybe reviving Blue Blood because it had been so much more successful than every other, you know, possibly competing product on the market. And now, I mean, when, and going back to those early issues of, of BLT where you were doing some issues that were a different type of print, that's all back again. You know, like Linotype is completely back. People want that stuff. I mean, there's there's a scene fest today that I'm going to miss, but um, <laughs> that is a showcase, as is the Print Museum down in Torrance, a great showcase for young people's interest in archaic printing because it's tangible, that there is not just perceived value, there's a value to it that you can hold this thing in your hand that not everybody knows how to make. It's not a Xerox. It's not digital. It's not just press enter. That if you combine some element of one with the other, that you have not just a product for an audience, but you have an example of a type of product for an even larger audience, that it's a special packaging good. And um, having talked to uh, Attaboy over at High Fructose, who we had on the program, they do a special thing now almost every issue of High Fructose, and it's a quarterly magazine. And, I mean, my hat's off to anybody who can publish anything regularly because of the amount of infrastructure involved in every aspect of it. And when I look at what you guys do, your name is on everything. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, it's the photography, the layout, the writing. It's, it's like everything. You, you're, you're doing 90%, probably 100%. I mean, you do publish other people's work occasionally. We publish other people's work actually pretty often. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also contribute to other people's publications right. pretty often. Um, right now for books, we're looking to do six to 12 books a year. Mm-hmm. Um, stuff we've got upcoming um, after the Razor Candy book, which comes out next, is uh, Ultra Happy Alarm, which is a kind of a raver kawaii themed mm-hmm. um, book. I love that title. 
the ultra happy alarm. Yeah. It is. It's a different look for, mm. uh, you know, some mm. of our stuff, but I, I feel like it, it, you know, puts the post at the other end of the, the spectrum because I either like it if it's super dark or crazy jelly beans. Right. And, and that's sort of in the, the crazy jelly beans. This, uh, is, this uh, is why we have always gotten along. <laughs> you share for us uh, colors. Oh, taste. my gosh. It's, it's the exact same stuff, you know, even politically, which we could talk mm. about for another show, but we won't because my audience will leave me. Um, <laughs> but that there's that that match i mean it's like the neighbor of super dark is super bright i mean you've gone completely around the circle to where they're whoops to where they they basically meet again at the back side and so i i find it a natural thing so when people are surprised that you can listen to i don't know nagura bungit and um you know akb 48 to me it's like well of course you could like why wouldn't you be able to but it also makes sense too that if you if you like one you may like the other there's going to be a larger a larger van than than most other people may think but there's also i assume you've been looking at beams and and things like that as far as as layout inspiration beams Beams is a Japanese um, like pop magazine that kind of established kawaii mm. culture. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's there's some of that. We you know sometimes I apartment. sometimes <laughs> I go to the you know the magazine. So we were at uh, Centerfold yesterday, mm-hmm. um, and sort of I I buy magazines and they have almost nothing to do with my interests. Depending, I'm just like wow, the design on this is really great exactly. or, or whatever, and and it's like the weird collection of things that the, the guy is ringing up, he's just like, I really don't know what you're into, but yeah. you know, it's just like, sometimes it's just what it looks like or, you know, just a really good example of his genre or whatever. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting to go from book to book to book where each one has its own sort of feel to it. Um, you know, the considerations for the razor candy book were really different mm-hmm. from uh, the considerations for, you know, ultra happy alarm. Mm-hmm. And then we'll, we'll do the, the barely evil one. Um, and, and the other ones we can't announce. Yet. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. So it's like, you know, we've got a bunch of cool things. That was a subtle whole, off right there i like that i like how that worked out but uh but yeah so that's a that's a fun thing and i do think that um the internet was for a while a really amazing creative frontier Mm -hmm. and everyone sort of homesteaded on it they made their own little websites and stuff like that and they all networked with each other and it used to be the world wide web and you'd follow links from this Mm -hmm. to that to the next thing and i think the consolidation has been really hard on on creative outlets um and the sort of central control of what's allowed on you know the major brands and stuff like that and people rarely sort of go outside that that sort of america online v2 Mm -hmm. um and i think that that's that's helped the the sort of print media resurgence because I think that a lot of people are looking to to socialize outside of that realm again yeah. whereas for a lot of years it was just like you'd talk to someone in person and they'd be like did you read my Facebook or whatever and it's just like no I didn't yeah. um, I, I turned that stuff <laughs> I, I turn it off literally for or, like, you know long periods when I actually have things to do yeah. because it really sucks a lot of your, your creative energies or you're just mad about stuff all the time and so I think that people do want to have cool things on their coffee table or you know whatever um, these days and that's been really helpful and, and finding the sort of outlets for that is definitely a challenge because the, the distribution's not what it used to be and you have to get very very creative but we always had to be creative on that so right. you know but even in, in that what you touched on a little bit is the opposite end of, of not wanting to see stuff but of wanting to see stuff that is now being withheld from you because of the pay metric that has entered into most of our social media platforms so that even if you subscribe to someone's feed you don't always get it yeah. You know, like it's how many times have you been reading about something that, that started 10 minutes ago and you realize, I oh. hate the thing where I'm just like, wow, I would have gone to that. Yeah. 
And, and sometimes it's, it's been, not even 10 minutes ago. It's like yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's and not even like you could rush. You you, you see the, the pictures from the event in someone else's feed. And you're like, how come I was? Oh, I was invited. How come I didn't get that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's a pay model and cultural control. Yeah. I think there's a lot of uh, sort of squashing of, of you know, uh, certain areas. Um, you know, it's a lot like MTV used to be really brilliant and inspiring and, and played a lot of great creative videos from all sorts of genres. And then they got kind of corporate mm-hmm. and squashed it down and started really controlling culture and telling people what was like, okay. And what wasn't okay. Mm-hmm. And so I think that a lot of things, when they hit that, that maturity, there's a lot of sort of pressure to, to, I don't know, sand off the edges and so that's that's something you got to figure out how to how to deal with and i in a way the byproduct of that is is a resurgence of of you know cool edgy comic books and magazines and zines and you know uh, different publications so and for us i mean with blueblood.com and our various other sites 20 million eyeballs a month look at our stuff so we have a pretty good platform just as a jumping off point for all right, it's not one of those things where you can be like, well, if every one of those people gave me a nickel, because every one of those people isn't going to give you a nickel. Right. But when there are certain commonalities and the kinds of things they're looking for, I have really good stats on it where I can be like, okay, it's worth signing this artist to do a book with, and this one maybe not so much. Right. And then you meet them, and then you make a whole other different set of decisions. (laughs) I don't think I would collaborate with someone on a project that big that I didn't kind of know at right, this point. Right, right. But it, it's certainly in the in the exploratory phase, in the magazine buying phase as Forrest tapped into that, oh, wow, we should totally, this this person has a look. And then you, you know, I cannot work with this person. You know, that, that, that certainly, that happens with me a lot, you know, in, in exhibiting artists where I have a conversation yeah. with them, like, I can't work with this person. No way. And, you know, not to say, not to burn a bridge, but to be like, I don't, well, you know, this doesn't quite fit our program this year or something, you know, and, and make an excuse. And then maybe they mature later and you get a point where you, you feel like, oh, now they've got their ducks in a row and now I think I can work with them. And hopefully, you know, they still want to work with you. In well, my some, case, me. <laughs> some things take different skill sets because there might be somebody where we would photograph them once for a particular, you know, image we had in our heads mm-hmm. or that was for some particular purpose. Um as an artist, it's really important to me that my work be seen. Mm-hmm. So I'm definitely not one of those people who's like, I write bad poetry by myself in my room and don't show it to anyone. Right. It's like, that's not my jam. That wasn't even my jam when I was 14. So. Right. <laughs> um, so not everybody's a fit for every project. Right. But it's not necessarily uh, negative. It's just not everybody's a fit for every right. project. There's stuff that I'm not good at. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Um, so just because we don't, necessarily do a book with every person that we like pass in the street right it's like you know that's a that's a selection sort where yeah we have a lot of criteria and we're very selective Mm -hmm. um and it takes a big investment so we have to choose intelligently right and some difficult people have certain personality types and they have a hard time getting along with a lot of other people but in a way we're used to working with those people and if you actually you know spend some effort and understand what their priorities are and what their goals are Mm -hmm. then sometimes you can speak to those priorities and goals and really reduce the friction that they would have with other people who are just like why aren't you profit motivated or you know whatever Um, so I think that sometimes we can work with people who are a real challenge um, for other people, and sometimes it can be a challenge for us too. But I think that it has a lot to do with the approach um, and the sort of understanding. To quote Donald Rumsfeld, "There's the unknown Why would known, you do that? <laughs> and there's the unknown unknown." 
You know that no it's that it's something where like for me. You know I, the right questions to yeah. ask. Well, you and know, a lot someone, of people don't. You know, someone's going to be difficult. Some of the people that we have worked with are notoriously difficult people. Yeah. Um, but if you understand them, yeah. Um, sometimes you know you can you can make it work. Yeah. Um, there's difficult and there's impossible, and there's 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 a difference between the two. And a lot of people that are merely difficult may be impossible to someone who doesn't know what questions to ask. And then some people that seemed merely difficult can be crazy. And then you realize <laughs> that, wait a minute, we did address all of these things and you've completely changed your mind about all of these things in the contract that we have signed. Yeah, for me, that is my number one pet peeve yeah. is to me, it's not a question of whether it's written in a contract or whether you shook hands. It's like, did you make a promise? Does your word mean anything? Yeah. When you make a promise, you keep your word. Yeah. And I understand sometimes life happens and maybe somebody doesn't do exactly what they meant to do. Right. But when someone actually tries to change what their obligation is, yeah. that is like the number one thing where it's like if someone wants to like not do business with me, that 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 that's the thing to do. Yeah. Um. But like, there's people like who are prima donnas, where some people yeah. are like, "Oh, that person thinks they're so great." Especially in the and, realm of people who take their clothing off. I mean, there's that's going to be a huge thing. Artists, right? that, writers, yeah. The whole, and then, the, whole then there's the emotional clothes that they're taking off. Yes, yeah. But, cr- yeah. Creative people. Yeah. A lot of creative people are prima donnas if they're good. And for me. I don't mind if someone's a prima donna and they think they're so great, so long as they really are that good. Yeah. If they're not really that good, then I don't want to work with them. Yeah. If they are really that good, I'm not offended by them being impressed with themselves. Right. Probably some people, if you give them the venue to show their work and it turns out to, you know, not be that good or whatever, then you're the bad guy because you showed them the mirror. Right. And and that can be difficult, too, sometimes. It's, it's like, I'm not trying to, you know, knock you down. It's just, you know, your numbers weren't that great, you know, and, yeah. and sometimes that's a, a bit of a challenge. Because um, you're not trying to be insulting. You're like, I like what you do, and I'd like to expose it to a bigger audience yeah. to help you evolve uh, to get even bigger. Um, but sometimes that 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 doesn't go so well because there's a difference between thinking you're great, you know, in your bedroom or whatever. Um, your your internet audience, you know, really gives you a lot of positive accolades, and then sort of getting it out there. And that's a, an interesting stage. For, it doesn't, you know, happen to everybody, but it, you know, it's. It, those two I words, think, managing expectations. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think it's something also where sometimes if somebody hasn't had a lot of an audience and mm-hmm. all of a sudden they get an audience, there are some people who will build audiences for a talented person. And then there are some people who are kind of more parasites and they go whisper in someone's ear as soon as their name starts blowing up. Right. And it certainly it happened to us when we started coming up and pretty much everyone I know once their name started being like just a little bit known yeah. there are the people who come up and they're always bringing their ear like oh the people you're working with now I bet they're not the right people you should be working with different people you should be working with me yeah only the people who have lasting legacies you know some people will talk about oh Elvis's manager he was so bad Elvis is one of the most important icons of American creative work ever. Yeah. So I think the fact that he danced with the one who brought him. Yeah. Not exactly a bad call. Yeah. And like people will like make fun of Justin Bieber, but given what a huge name he is, given his level of talent, mm-hmm. super hardworking, mm-hmm. good looking guy. Music isn't really my taste. I kind of think you <laughs> nightmare can nightmare ma- is a human being. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't think he's a nightmare as a human being. I think that he is a winner because he sticks with the people who actually were like, you know what, we're going to blow you up. We're going to make you big. And rather than being like, I'm going to go switch managers, 
he danced with he's one just not very him. bright i guess is is really the better way of putting that not that he's a nightmare as a human being i've but never he's administered not very a bright. math test to him yeah um but it's something where there are probably i think a fair number of people as good looking as he is and as talented as he is who are names that none of us would recognize mm. because they didn't stick with the people who sort of brought them. Right. It was like the guy who invented the the Backstreet Boys. And they were like, oh, we don't need you. So they disappeared and he invented NSYNC. Yeah. So it's like, I don't know, who deserved credit on that? Yeah, like the, the next Maurice Star. The guy that put to, Maurice Star put together, I think it was New Kids on the Block and New Edition. And he was kind of like the next guy. But yeah. Well, cool. I mean, let's let's shout out some social media. Um, I know that you could probably do that for fifteen minutes, but um, <laughs> what are what are some of the things that you want to get out there if people are looking to to follow what you do? My Twitter is Amelia G. Mm-hmm. Um, if you follow the Blue Blood Twitter, that tends to link to a lot of our cool projects. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. My Twitter is Forest Black. Um, so it's pretty easy to find. Uh, I would say, yeah, Blue Blood Net, um, we're hoping to throw some more attention to as we gear up to, to get into some of those projects. Um, let's see, what else? Uh, if you, you want to search for either Amelia G or Forrest Block on Facebook, uh, you're welcome to friend me, uh, so long as you don't like to talk about outrageous things all the time. And I don't mean outrageous like taking your pants off in public. I mean like outrageous like you're outraged at stuff. Right. Outraged stuff. Yes, outraged. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Well, thanks for joining me for this. Um, we're going to have you back. We're going to talk about um, affiliates in the gig economy in, in erotica. And uh, thanks for, for talking about self-publishing and about the metrics involved in selection. Because I think that that's, as we focus a lot on DIY here, that you're a golden example of people who have taken the DIY aesthetic and made it a life not a lifestyle, but everything. It's, you know, it's a success story. It's a follow your dream story. It's a pragmatic economic story. And there's so few times when all those things match up. A lot of times I'll interview people and they're talking about the struggle of being a self-publisher. And you're saying, you know what? We're good at this. We're going to continue doing this. And we're always on the lookout for new material. So thanks again for joining us. This has been Pod Sequentialism. I've been your host, Matt Kennedy. And uh, we'll be back next week with a new episode. Hello, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism. And um, what many many of you may know that I, I do run a gallery in Los Angeles called La Luz de Jesus Gallery. And what you may not know is that it's inside Wacko, which is probably the greatest center of pop culture in the world. And it may sound like hyperbole, it's not. Um, you can, if you don't want to trust my judgment, you can listen to people like Kevin Smith, uh, James Gunn, uh, David Mack, um, all of whom will swear that uh, one of their favorite places on earth is uh, Wacko, the shop that houses La Luz de Jesus Gallery. Um, whether it's blind box toys or little tchotchkes or art books, it pretty much is the place that you can get all of your Christmas shopping done for every possible annoying person to buy for that you can imagine. They've got everything, and I highly recommend that you visit them. You can visit them online at soapplant.com. You can visit the gallery at laluzdejesus.com, and that's spelled L-A-L-U-Z-D-E-J-E-S-U-S.com. Check them out and tell them Matt Kennedy sent you.